Due to the graphic nature of this story, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of drug abuse and violence that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. To protect the privacy of individuals involved, some names have been changed to pseudonyms in today's story. On a cold evening in 1992, journalist Jennifer Toth accompanied six New York police officers on their patrol through the New York City subway. She'd been inside the tunnels before, but this was the first time with a police escort. The cops hopped onto the tracks, flashlights in hand. Toth was careful as she climbed down after them, stepping over the electrified third rail. The tracks were live, which means that one accidental touch of the rail could kill her instantly. As they walked deeper into the tunnel, Toth noticed a few discarded needles and glass vials that used to hold crack cocaine. A disgusting odor filled the space. She spotted human feces everywhere. The tunnel was silent, except for the faint echoes of dripping water and scratching rats. Then, a figure moved in the darkness up ahead. Heavy footsteps moved toward them. One of the cops swung his flashlight around. His hand dropped to his sidearm, ready to draw and fire. They saw the figure race up a rusty ladder leading to a small room hidden in the tunnel ceiling. Toth was sure it was one of the infamous mole people. She and the cops gave chase, but the figure seemingly vanished. The cops weren't willing to go any deeper into the tunnel, so to meet the real mole people, Toth had to go into the darkness alone. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know, but in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Tuesday and Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is our second episode on Mole People. Last time, we traced the origins of subterranean living in myth and reality. Then we discussed the spread of mole people in the 1970s and 80s as thousands of unhoused people moved underground into New York City's subway tunnels. This time, we'll follow the investigations of Jennifer Toth and other journalists as they revealed what life was really like beneath the earth. We'll find out what tragic circumstances led them there and how they finally escaped. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. 
there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. The first time Jennifer Toth heard the term mole people was in 1989 from a 10-year-old girl named Kristen. Toth was getting her master's degree in journalism and volunteering as a tutor for disadvantaged kids in her spare time. Kristen was one of Toth's students, and during a lesson, she mentioned that one of her classmates lived in a subway tunnel like a mole. Kristen squished her face so it would look more like a rodent and laughed. But Toth didn't think it was amusing. It sounded like this classmate really needed help. Toth learned the student's name was Julie and reached out to her father. She learned that Julie wasn't alone. She was part of a community living beneath New York City. Toth felt a tinge of excitement. As a journalist, this was a story that could make her career. Toth spoke to people living on the street about these mysterious underground dwellers. Many unhoused New Yorkers knew about them or had at least heard rumors. Several people she interviewed claimed to know about secret entrances to underground passages. A few even offered to take her, but disappeared at the last minute, apparently afraid to actually venture into the tunnels. Then, in 1990, Toth had a breakthrough— The director of a local soup kitchen gave her Sergeant Brian Henry's name, a veteran NYPD officer who ran a homeless outreach program. Henry was stationed in a cramped, windowless office near Grand Central Terminal. Toth paid him a visit to ask about the mole people, and he confirmed the rumors. There was another city beneath their feet with thousands of inhabitants, and for the most part, no one knew it existed. Henry introduced Toth to J.C., a man who used to reside in the subway tunnels. He and Henry started as adversaries, but slowly became friends through the outreach program. With some gentle persuading, Henry convinced him to be Toth's guide into the tunnels. J.C. led Toth to a hidden encampment six stories below the subway at Grand Central Terminal. The entrances were camouflaged to keep out police and other unhoused people. As J.C. explained, no one wandered into their community without an invitation. After what felt like hours of walking, shimmying, and crawling through the dark, they arrived at a large room filled with tents. About a dozen people sat around a gas lantern, their faces covered with soot. Toth saw women hanging wet clothes to dry and children playing on steam pipes above her. A bearded man in his 40s stepped forward and shook her hand. 
he introduced himself as Ali, the elected mayor of the community. Toth tried not to look surprised. From what she'd heard, the mole people were a ragged bunch of addicts and lost souls. Instead, she found an organized, self-governing society with rules and free elections. Ali explained that he was happy below ground, far more than he ever was on the surface. As a black man, he'd faced prejudice and discrimination his whole life. But down in the tunnels, skin color didn't matter. Without sunlight, everyone was a shade of gray. When Ali moved underground in 1985, he left society and his troubled past behind. But it came with a cost. He hadn't been above ground in five years, and now anything but very weak light hurt his eyes. He'd gone up to the tracks a few months prior, and he couldn't stand the bright fluorescent lights. Ali let Toth walk around and interview other mole people. She was particularly interested in the children. She wondered whether their development was stunted due to lack of sunlight, nutrition, and education. But she understood that sometimes parents were forced to make hard choices. One of the first people she spoke to about tunnel living was Kristen's classmate, Julie. Julie was a lonely girl. In school, she faced constant teasing because of her ratty clothes and poor hygiene. In Ali's camp, Toth heard similar stories from the children she spoke to. But unlike Julie, many of them received their education underground. A teacher designed a curriculum for the youngest in the community, including courses in math, science, and ethics. The kids still needed sunlight, so she used a room beneath a sidewalk grate for her instructions. Runners went up to the surface periodically to fetch supplies. There seemed to be plenty of food to go around. The camp was also equipped with a surprising amount of amenities, relatively speaking. The residents jury-rigged steam pipes to heat food and take showers. They even had an exercise room. And this was far from unique. Ali told Toth that there was a whole network of communities like theirs spanning the entire east side of Manhattan. Sergeant Henry also knew of at least one location with similar luxuries, a cavern with a 30-foot cliff separating the train tracks from an underground village of 300 people. The locals called the place the Condos because it was the peak of subterranean living. There was running water from a leaky water main and free electricity siphoned from the city's grid. As appealing as it sounded, Henry was quick to point out that the condos were still dangerous. The area included exposed electrical wires and walls contaminated with asbestos, a mineral known to cause lung cancer. And as much as Ali boasted about how good his life was, Toth met dozens of people who didn't share his optimism. One resident of the condos named Seville told Toth that he'd faced death dozens of times. Seville was 31 years old, and he'd been in and out of jail for much of his life. He struggled with addiction to heroin and crack cocaine. He walked with a limp from when a robber stabbed him in the foot. Seville had mixed reviews about his fellow mole people. Some treated him like family. Others were armed and dangerous. Many were drug users, and all of them, he said, were deeply unhappy. The underground life Seville described had a daily element of risk. 
This was part of why Toth was drawn to his story, but she underestimated how much danger she brought on herself by entering their world. Toth descended into New York City's underbelly dozens of times. She often used mole people as her guides and became friendly with many. But aside from their assurances, her only protection was a small can of mace. Mace may have been enough to scare off a drunken attacker, but there were people in the tunnels who'd been imprisoned for assault and rape. Others suffered from severe mental health conditions and were prone to violence. One of those was a man who called himself Blade. Toth considered Blade one of the most complicated people she'd ever met. In a single day, she'd seen him rescue a stranded kitten and kick an old man for blocking his path. A savior one minute, a villain the next. Blade was very fond of Toth. At a soup kitchen, he once defended her from a homeless man who tried to molest her. Below ground, he warned her to be careful. He implied that some mole people were murderers, himself included. Toth thought that he was exaggerating, but the words stuck with her. One day, she heard from another mole person that Blade was looking for her, and he was angry. Blade claimed Toth witnessed him killing someone in the tunnels. Now he was out to silence her, permanently. Afterwards, she stayed away from the tunnels. She never gave out any private information, but somehow he discovered her phone number. He left threatening messages on her answering machine, promising to end her life. And if he could get her home phone number, she thought, maybe he knew where she lived. The next week, Toth packed her bags and fled New York City. Less than a year later, she published a book called The Mole People. It was an intimate mosaic of stories about life underground filled with drug addicts, runaway children, and other lost souls abandoned by society. The book was a worldwide bestseller and catapulted the mole people into the public eye. It sparked an outcry over the government's complacency with regards to homelessness. A wave of journalists flocked to the sewers, hoping to capitalize on her success. But some had doubts about Toth's subterranean stories. Homeless advocates were angry at the name Mole People, saying it was pejorative. A few railroad experts believed that there were factual errors in how Toth described the subway system. With the backlash getting worse, Jennifer Toth stepped back into the public eye to defend her work, even if it put a target on her back. Coming up, Toth's best-selling book faces intense scrutiny. Hi, it's Vanessa from Parcast, and I'm here to tell you about my new 10-episode limited series, Obituaries. They're some of the most iconic figures of all time, celebrated in death for their individual achievements and impact on society. But in life, the relationships they kept tell a different story, one of unexpected connections that yielded extraordinary change. 
Every Wednesday on Obituaries, join my co-host Carter and me as we explore the shared legacies of prolific pairs from the past, from the mutual traumas of entertainers Marilyn Monroe and Ella Fitzgerald, to the unlikely admiration between visionaries Mark Twain and Nikola Tesla. Each episode of Obituaries digs deep into the lasting impressions made between two legendary figures and how their entanglements changed the course of history. These meaningful duos may have passed on, but the profound effect they had on each other and us will live on forever. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Obituaries. Listen free only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. Between 1990 and 1992, Jennifer Toth visited New York City's underground lairs dozens of times. Her 1993 book, titled The Mole People, was a thrilling and sad mosaic of tales about people living on the fringes of society. It was an instant bestseller and skyrocketed Toth's career as a journalist. The book featured many shocking revelations about life underground. She wrote about unhoused people eating rats, hoarding guns, and giving birth in abandoned tunnels. For some readers, her stories seemed too far-fetched to be true. One skeptic was a self-taught subway expert named Joseph Brennan. When Brennan read Toth's book in 1996, one of the first things he noticed was that her depictions of the subways were just wrong. For example, Toth described how the underground tunnels were all interconnected. But that simply wasn't true. Because of the enormous amount of work required to dig underground, the Transit Authority rarely built extra tunnels. There were some passages meant to facilitate easy access, but nothing like the subterranean network Toth described. Brennan claimed this was all easily proven by looking at the construction records located in City Hall. But Toth never mentioned a trip to City Hall in her book. She also didn't seem to understand the layout of Grand Central Terminal, despite having supposedly been there dozens of times. In her book, Toth described visiting seven levels and finding old tracks at the bottom. According to Brennan, this was impossible. Grand Central has an incredibly deep basement, the deepest in the city. Various estimates place it between 10 and 13 stories beneath the surface. But there are only two levels of track with two levels of tunnels below them. Brennan combed through the mole people and noted every instance where Toth described a location that couldn't possibly be real. He published his response in a blog post and put the following line in bold. It read, quote, Every fact in this book that I can verify independently is wrong, end quote. This statement created a stir of controversy. 
A journalist named Cecil Adams contacted Toth for an interview in order to set the record straight. In two articles for the Straight Dope magazine, he shared her reactions to Brennan's post. Toth insisted the stories in her book were genuine, as told by the people she interviewed. It's possible that some of her subjects lied to her, but that was the nature of her work. And she really did see a man cooking a rat. After talking with her, Adams was inclined to believe many of her stories were true. However, when he asked her about specific locations, her memory was surprisingly unreliable. In her book, she gave a very specific description of an abandoned tunnel she visited multiple times. In his post, Brennan claimed it didn't exist. When Adams asked her for directions, she couldn't remember how she got there. These questions about Toth's work inspired others to document the hidden lives of tunnel dwellers. One such person was a Dutch journalist named Turn Vooten. In winter 1994 until summer 1995, he lived with the mole people in Riverside Park Tunnel. He slept, ate, and breathed beside them. Like Toth, Vooten was interested in what led people to live underground. He wanted to know what it was like to survive outside of society, and if it was possible to return. Vooten began his journey at the Riverside Park Tunnel, a 50-block Amtrak passageway underneath the western shore of Manhattan. It was known affectionately as the Freedom Tunnel. Vooten walked past abandoned shopping carts and concrete walls tagged with decades of graffiti. Specks of dust flitted through golden strips of sunlight filtered through huge iron bars in the ceiling. After walking for nearly a half an hour in darkness, he saw a dim light up ahead. There were concrete storage bunkers converted into makeshift houses. He had finally reached the camp. To his surprise, it reminded him of a doctor's office. There were metal folding chairs, stacks of magazines, and a kitchenette. A fire was burning, illuminating a wall mural replicating Francisco Goya's painting, The Third of May. A tall man emerged from one of the bunkers. He grinned and shook Vooten's hand. This was Bernard Isaacs, the Lord of the Tunnel, as the mole people called him. Bernard's life was epic to hear him tell it. He'd gone to a prestigious film school in the 1980s and worked as a fashion model on the side. He was smart, ambitious, and handsome. After a stint in television, he found his groove as a travel guide. He jetted around the Caribbean, throwing lavish parties and using large quantities of cocaine. To pay for his fun, he allegedly sold drugs to celebrities like Rick James and David Geffen. But his fun couldn't last forever. Eventually, his cocaine habit ate up his money, leaving him deeply in debt. His second wife left him and took their child with her. Bernard went to L.A. to cool off and gave his apartment keys to someone he thought was a friend. But when he returned to New York, all of his stuff was gone. He found work as a janitor, but it wasn't enough to cover his rent. Pretty soon, he was sleeping on benches in Riverside Park. And that's when he found the tunnel entrance, hidden in plain sight. There was a peaceful solitude inside, a place where he could be alone with his thoughts. 
He thought it would be temporary, but it became his home for more than 10 years. On the surface, he could only afford to sleep in a cramped, noisy cubicle. Down below, he had all the space and quiet he could want. Bernard wanted Vooten to understand that he wasn't actually homeless. His lifestyle was different from most people, but it suited him. To prove his point, he took Vooten with him on his daily routine. At five each morning, he woke up, ate an oatmeal breakfast, then took a shopping cart into the city to collect cans. Cans were his main source of income. He traded them to a recycling company for five cents apiece. On any given day, he could make between 80 and 120 U.S. dollars. Bernard was proud of the fact that he never begged for money. But he did accept food. When he first started living in the tunnel, some restaurant managers let him have leftover scraps at the end of the day. But he needed to be careful. Some restaurants deliberately poisoned their garbage in order to keep scavengers away. Vutin learned that Bernard, like many of the mole people he met, was a drug user. Bernard refused the term addict because he said his habit was under control. But he always smoked a bit of crack cocaine before bed, calling it his nightcap. After following Bernard for a few days, Vutin got to know the other residents of Freedom Tunnel. And he realized that subterranean life wasn't as glamorous as Bernard made it out to be. Some of the mole people lost their homes because of substance or gambling addictions. Others were lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender teenagers. They'd either run away or been thrown out of their homes by their unaccepting parents. And more than a few tunnel dwellers were ex-convicts. Their backstories were tragic. Most moved into Freedom Tunnel because living on the surface was too dangerous, including a young man named Hugo. In 1987, Hugo was enlisted in the Navy when he failed a drug test and the Navy kicked him out. Afterwards, his family rejected him and he bounced around between several friends' couches. Eventually, he wore out his welcome and started sleeping on subway trains. Another unhoused person told him to visit a soup kitchen, but a gang of thieves robbed him en route. He spent one night in a homeless shelter and when he woke up, his spare clothes were gone, too. After sleeping in cardboard boxes and refrigerators, he finally discovered the tunnel. Sure, it had rats, but it also provided community and a modicum of security. So he crawled into the concrete hole, emerging only to work and buy crack cocaine. But the safety that Freedom Tunnel offered was limited. Mole people still often died from overdoses, suicides, and disease. Vooten didn't hear stories of mole people turning their lives around. Quite the opposite. As comfortable as it appeared, the tunnel was a dark pit from which no one emerged. Unless it was in a body bag. Coming up, the mole people returned to the surface. Now back to the story. For many unhoused people, living underground was a way to escape the dangers of surface living and to create a community underground. But as journalist turned Vooten learned, it was anything but safe. On Christmas Eve 1994, Vooten returned to Freedom Tunnel to find it roped off by the police. Apparently, 
A mole person was hit by a train, his body mangled beyond recognition. Luton tried to get through, but multiple officers turned him away with threats of arrest. One even threatened to hit Vooten with his flashlight. When he reported what happened to other mole people, they weren't surprised. Most mole people didn't like cops. They'd all been harassed or abused by NYPD officers in the past. They distrusted even the officers who showed compassion. Some officers, like the Amtrak police, just wanted everybody gone. They came by on occasion to shout at the mole people to leave. They chained the entrances shut, but the tunnel dwellers cut the locks with bolt cutters. Other authorities simply didn't understand their predicament. One park ranger offered to bring Bernard to a shelter where he could get free food and medical care. To his surprise, Bernard not only refused, he got mad. Bernard didn't want the ranger's pity. He had a home and a fully stocked kitchen. The only thing he needed was to be left alone. But that wasn't likely to happen. It wasn't just law enforcement officers who wanted him off the streets. At the time, there were about 30 organizations aimed at helping the unhoused. According to Vooten, homelessness was big business. In 1996, New York City budgeted $600 million to address the problem, which is the equivalent of over $1 billion today. Most of the money was spent on homeless shelters and temporary residences for people living in poverty. But the projects were rife with corruption and wasteful spending. Despite the massive investment, they were cheaply built, poorly maintained, and generally unsafe. Violence and drug dealing were everyday occurrences. In addition to the official budget, there were many churches, soup kitchens, and charities that provided meals, showers, and other necessities. What the city didn't have was long-term housing or jobs that allowed mole people to actually afford apartments. In 1994, Henry Cisneros, secretary of New York City's housing department, made a big show of visiting the mole people. Trailed by cameras, he stepped over rats, used needles, and piles of feces. Afterwards, he proudly announced a $9 million boost to fund Section 8 vouchers. These vouchers could be used by unhoused people to pay for low-rent apartments in the city. But $9 million could only buy 250 units, a fraction of what was needed. The underground population alone numbered in the thousands. Receiving a voucher was like winning the lottery. Some waited years for the city to pick their name. And the application was complicated and intimidating for those unused to bureaucracy. In the words of one mole person, quote, when they see all the paperwork, they'd rather stay on the street. When housing finally became available, another obstacle arose. After years underground, some individuals didn't know how to live in society. In 1995, Vooten interviewed Eric Roth, the director of the Bowery Residence Committee, a charity aimed at transitioning unhoused people back into society. Roth often had to explain basic tasks and societal expectations most people took for granted, like how to use a refrigerator or to flush the toilet after use. Sometimes it felt like he was patronizing his clients, but it was for their benefit. 
If they lit fires or damaged the apartment, their landlords would expel them. In the early 1990s, programs that practiced a holistic approach to homelessness, like the Bowery Committee, emerged. Roth described their process in detail in Vooten's book, Tunnel People. They started with outreach. His staff met with the mole people and shared information about the Bowery Committee's services. They bribed the residents with food, clothing, and showers. Sometimes the police help with this. For Sergeant Brian Henry, it was his full-time job. Henry went into the tunnels below Grand Central Terminal each night and did his best to convince people to leave. He offered them food and shelter above ground. A few accepted his offer immediately, but most didn't. They found it could take months or years to gain a mole person's trust. Once that happened, the Bowery Committee helped individuals with the necessary paperwork to receive welfare and Section 8 housing. At the same time, they connected their clients with mental health and drug rehabilitation services. Vooten and Toth both wrote that a majority of tunnel dwellers suffered from some kind of mental health condition or substance abuse problem. Without proper aid, they would inevitably end up back on the streets in a matter of months. In the mid-1990s, the efforts of organizations like the Bowery Committee paid off. One by one, the mole people left the Freedom Tunnel and moved into alternate housing. One of the last holdouts was Bernard. In 1995, a representative from the Coalition for the Homeless, one of the biggest advocacy organizations in the city, convinced Bernard to apply for a Section 8 voucher. But he still didn't want to abandon Freedom Tunnel. Finally, in late 1996, the Amtrak police evicted him by force. Afterwards, Bernard moved in with his father. He got a nighttime job for the Parks Department and stopped using drugs. He accepted his new life, but he longed for the solitude of the tunnel. Sadly, Bernard passed away in late 2014. Several of his friends didn't survive that long. Some relapsed and started living outside. Others disappeared. Many suffered from debilitating medical conditions, the consequence of years of drug use and hard living. Hugo was one of the unlucky ones. After leaving the tunnel, he wound up back on the streets and disappeared. The last time anyone saw him, he was heavily addicted to crack cocaine. One expert claimed that 15% of mole people died within 12 years of leaving the tunnels. But there were plenty, like Bernard, who turned their lives around completely. One man got a job as a hotel manager, while another became a superintendent in charge of five buildings in the Bronx. Since the mid-1990s, the number of mole people in New York City has steadily declined. The Freedom Tunnel is mostly empty, as is the famous condos encampment under Grand Central Terminal. But there are still mole people in cities all over the country. Right now, more than a thousand people occupy storm drains beneath the Las Vegas Strip. And homelessness across the country still abounds. A 2010 study in the Annual Review of Sociology 
estimated that 1.6 million Americans used a shelter or transitional housing, like a welfare hotel, at least once a year. In some states, like California, the problem is only getting worse. There are as many causes for homelessness as there are unhoused people. And there's no one-size-fits-all solution. Some advocates argue that the government should provide housing first. Others claim mental health treatment or job training should be the priority. The best answer is probably all three at the same time. One group in Utah provided concurrent housing and social services to 200 unhoused people. According to their reports, five years later, 88% of their clients were still in their apartments, using fewer government resources than if they'd stayed on the streets. We can help these people, and we must. The tunnel dwellers of New York City chose to live underground, not because they wanted to, but because they had to, because it was the only way they could feel safe. The real mole people aren't the Morlocks of H.G. Wells' imagination or the horrific mutants from popular movies. They aren't cannibals or sideshows. They're human beings, just like you and I. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We will be back next time with a new episode. For more information on Mole People, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Mole People by Jennifer Toth and Tunnel People by Turn Vooten extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. See you next time. And remember, never take We Don't Know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries is a Spotify original from ParCast. It is executive produced by Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Dick Schroeder with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Xander Bernstein with writing assistance by Andrew Messer and Connor Sampson. Fact-checking by Cara Mackerlein and research by Bradley Klein. Unexplained Mysteries stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. Hi, it's Vanessa from ParCast. If you enjoy our in-depth profiles on historical figures and famous fates, you'll love my new limited series, Obituaries. Every Wednesday on Spotify, join me and my co-host Carter as we explore the unlikely bonds forged between two meaningful figures from the past and discover how those relationships impacted the future. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Obituaries. Listen weekly, free and only on Spotify.